0: Good evening, everyone. Tonight's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 52. So if you could open your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 13, um, 47 to 52. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was led down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been Who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven Is like the owner of a house Who brings out his old storeroom Sorry Who brings out of his old storeroom New treasures as well as old Good evening everyone Uh, For
1: those of you who don't know me me, My name is Simon And my wife Sarah and our five kids Come to 10.30 um, And it's my pleasure to be able to share with you From God's word this evening. Uh, now, this morning at the eight thirty service, I sort of flicked the microphone away like a fly, um, and then it caused sort of issues all the way through the sermon. So hopefully, I won't do that <laughs> this evening. Uh, we'll see how we go. Uh, so please pray with me. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are a powerful God who has the ability to save us through Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your word. And as we have a look at it this evening, we pray that you would help me to speak faithfully from it and that you would help us all to reflect uh, and to go away reminded of your truth and to put things into action. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We live in a world full of injustice, crime and wickedness. Just this week, a man in the Illawarra was arrested for assaulting his 12-week-old daughter and her 17-year-old mother. The alleged crime is one of causing reckless bodily harm, choking his victim's assault and breaking an apprehended violence order. Another man in Sydney shot at his former partner's house before going on to shoot at two different police stations before finally being shot dead by the police in what seemed like suicide by cop. Recorded cases of sexual abuse in Australia have increased by 40% in the last decade. Drug and alcohol offences are on the rise, rating Australia as moderate for level level of risk of being on the receiving end of a crime related to drug and alcohol abuse. Prison inmate numbers in Australia reached their peak Their all time peak in June this year. Over the last few weeks in our sermon series here at WBC, we've even heard examples of crime, of wickedness, depravity, and evil, even within the Christian church. On a daily basis, though, not all of us are touched by this kind of wickedness or crime. It's more the visiting friend of a neighbour who parks over my driveway this morning that made it difficult for me to get out. Or the person who ate my secret stash of Cadbury Dairy Milk chocolate on the night that I was planning to eat it when I got home late from a school board meeting. Or it's those who are perhaps gossiping about me or maligning my name. Or those who are leaving me out of some sort of social group or network. Many of these things feel like they're not dealt with. People seem to get away with stuff. The damage is often done and can't be undone. And in some cases, it just seems that justice never takes place. It does make us wonder, is God ever going to deal with the wickedness and the injustice that we find in our world? Sometimes our frustrations boil over and we seek revenge we take matters into our own hands. Or sometimes we just become bitter. And I was feeling that when my chocolate was gone. The parable that we're looking at this evening has something to say about this dilemma and how God is going to deal with wickedness. Matthew 13, 47 to 48, I'll read it again, says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, That was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and collected good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Jesus is using a really familiar picture for the people of the day in order to describe God's reign and what the kingdom of heaven is like. It would have been particularly familiar for some of his disciples who were fishermen and who grew up on the sea of Galilee. It's perhaps a less familiar picture for us today, but still one that we can understand. The net being used would have been a large net that would have been dragged between two boats. And as the fishermen bring in their haul and they walk through work through the water, all manner of things are collected from the sea. The fishermen drag the net onto the shore, and there you have a picture of a bunch of blokes sorting through their catch for the day, throwing out the inedible, the fish that's poisonous to eat or is too small. And if we were telling it in a modern-day context, we would include all the bits of soft plastic that find themselves in the ocean. And while they're sorting out, they're discarding to one side that which cannot be eaten and to the other which can be collected, can be eaten, and can be gone on to be sold at market. Well, the question stands then, how does this parable about the separation of fish have anything to do with the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think there are three things that we can pull out this evening. The reality of judgment, the consequences associated with that judgment, and the timing of God's judgment. Verse 49 says, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into a blazing furnace. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Firstly, there will be judgment, a separation of the righteous and the wicked. There is only two categories, the righteous on one hand and the wicked on the other. There is not some in between group. You can't, be, you can't be mostly righteous or not too wicked. You are either righteous or you're not. There isn't a basket of fish that might be kept in the hope that while they're undersized, the fishing inspector won't come and check our haul for the day and we might just be able to sneak them through at the last minute. There is no third category. There will be a judgment and you're either righteous or you're wicked. Secondly, this judgment will be final, and the consequences are significant. What we are told that the consequences of not being found righteous is the reality of hell. It's described as a blazing furnace, a place of torment and torture, and there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Jesus doesn't go into a long explanation or description of hell in this parable, it's not his primary point but it's an accepted reality that there is a place for the wicked and it's clearly undesirable to be found in so far then we see that the judgment will take place to separate the righteous and the wicked and the consequences of being found to be wicked will be thrown to be thrown into the blazing furnace or hell Thirdly, then, what seems really clear in this parable that Jesus told is around the timing of that judgment that's to take place. The sorting doesn't happen while the fishermen are out at sea on the boat or perhaps even on their way in. It happens when they're finished for the day and when they've reached the shore. The whole time they're out on the lake, the net is catching a whole mixture of things. That which can be eaten... And that which cannot, that which can be kept, and that which needs to be discarded. And the sorting is left till the end. The point is that there will be a decisive separation of the wicked from the righteous, and it will happen at the end of the age, at that time in which Jesus returns. Until then, there will be a mixture of good and evil. In our world, For the disciples and the people of Jesus' day, this might have caught them a little bit off guard. It might have come as something of a surprise or a shock. The general expectation about the coming of the kingdom of heaven amongst Jesus' contemporaries was that God would raise up a new leader, a military-style leader who would lead the people of Israel against their oppressors and make them a great nation once more. In particular, God's Old Testament people, the Jews, would rise up against their oppressors, namely the Romans, and be great in their own name, and be the leaders in their region. And they would do so under a great leader like that of King David, who in the Old Testament the people cheered and called out that he'd killed tens of thousands in battle, as though he was carrying out God's justice on the pagan nations around them. It would be at this time that there would be a clear delineation between the righteous, the Jews, and the wicked, the pagan Romans, or so they thought. But Jesus is telling a really different story. He's telling something that they aren't necessarily expecting. The separation between the righteous and the wicked won't happen immediately. It wouldn't happen in an earthly military battle, nor would there be a clear uprising of God's people against their earthly oppressors. For now, there is going to be a mixture of good and evil in the world. Condemnation and dealing with wickedness will ultimately come at the end of the age, carried out by an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, righteous, holy and just judge. It isn't going to be ad hoc in the midst of battle. Life in the kingdom of heaven is to be one of patient forbearance rather than actively seeking to overthrow oppression. And it's going to be characterised by living alongside the wicked, those outside the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be lived with an eye to the future, knowing that God will come of his own accord and in his own time to act decisively to rid the world of wickedness and evil once for all. Okay, you say, that clears up some of the misunderstandings that the people of Jesus' day had, but what about us? If we know it is not until Jesus returns that there will be a decisive separation between wickedness and righteousness and injustice will finally be judged and dealt with, then it should lead us to not expecting that now. Too often I think we get angry and frustrated with the injustice that happens in our world, and maybe rightly so. But we should have a sense of peace and understanding to know that God is going to deal with it once for all, just not yet. It should give, any, give way to any sense of vengeance or indignation that we might have against the lack of injustice because we know justice will take place. Now this doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek justice or speak up against injustice. It doesn't mean that if we're in positions of leadership or responsibility where perhaps we have to administer justice that we shouldn't seek to do so being fair and seeking the truth. I'm a school principal. I have to deal with this stuff every day. I don't just get to say, I oh, can make any old decision they like, and uh, God will deal with it in the end. But it does give me comfort, as I know that even when we get it wrong, even when decisions aren't made in the best cases, that God will ultimately bring all things to account, and that He will bring about justice that is true when our earthly justice is often flawed. And fails. It isn't easy, though. It isn't easy being patient or to act with forgiveness and forbearance. It should cause us, though, to look to our motivation about how we act towards those who wrong us, to examine our heart attitude to those around us, knowing that Jesus will act decisively, dealing with and separating righteousness from wickedness. There's something in this parable that we have not fully dealt with yet, though, and that is, who are the righteous and who are the wicked? In Jesus' day, the righteous would have been viewed as the faithful Jews, those who kept the religious practices of the day, whose ethnic heritage was a descendant of the Old Testament Israelites. But in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus spoke about, the answer isn't that simple, in Matthew five twenty, when Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the religious giants of the day. If anyone was going to meet the requirements for keeping the law and for being declared righteous, surely it was going to be them but Jesus says that even their moral deeds are not righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. The dividing line here isn't between people. It's not between Rod Bailey and Simon Langston, the righteous and the wicked, but rather right down the middle of every single human being and down the middle of every human heart. All of us have a wickedness or an evil in our hearts. We're all born sinful. We're all corrupted by the curse of sin. We may not have committed a crime like shooting at a police station or beating our child, but if we're really honest with ourselves and we examine our hearts, we all have mixed motives. We can be selfish, proud, unkind, greedy, and what about the way we treat God? Often we act without a care for him or as though we don't need him. In Romans three ten to 12, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We all fall short of the perfect standard of God in terms of righteousness in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So put this together with the parable of the net, and we arrive at a really scary truth. If I'm not righteous, does that mean that I'm among the wicked that will be separated out and cast into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping? and gnashing of teeth? Is the blazing furnace awaiting me? Is a place of eternal suffering and damnation my final destination? In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, it says, Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The news isn't good. The passage in 1 Corinthians 6 is really clear. Sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. The standard is pretty high. We've all been greedy at least once. And so it would seem that we're all ruled out. But the 1 Corinthians passage that I read doesn't finish with verse 10. Verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The message to the Corinthians believers is that they were numbered amongst the wicked. They were, if you like, the fish that would be discarded, thrown into the fire, but they are now counted among the righteous because Jesus has declared them to be righteous. He has washed them, he has sanctified them and justified them in his name. And at the end of the age, when they stand before the righteous and holy judge and when he looks at the charge sheet, he does not see their name but he sees the name of Christ. Jesus, the one who lived a life in perfect righteousness, the one who lived a life without sin, who was crucified and died on a cross and who rose again, conquering death and sin. The message is the same for us. If we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, then we too can be counted as righteous in the name of Christ. At the end of the age when the separation takes place between righteous and the wicked, we can be in the righteous through faith in Christ. But the warning stands that the blazing furnace and the weeping and gnashing of teeth await those who reject God and who don't trust in his saving work in Christ. It's very important that we understand what is at stake here. It's the difference between eternal life and eternal condemnation. The parable is in part of warning of what is to come. There is going to be a decisive day when this world will be judged and when those who are not part of the kingdom of heaven will be held accountable and there will be no second chance. There will be no court of appeal there will be no suspended sentence. There will be no basket of fish that doesn't quite meet the size, that they just slip through anyway. They will be thrown into hell. It's endless, it's helpless, and it's hopeless. Sometimes we try to soften the warning, but we can't and we shouldn't. It's not really a topic we bring up at dinner parties or in polite conversations. It's kind of in the category of politics and discussing your salary. You hear people jokingly say, if I go to hell, it's okay, at least I'll be there partying with my mates. There will be no party. There will be no mates. Because all of these are good things that come from God. Australians have the, it'll be all right on the night mentality. You know, it won't be. There will be endless regret and distress for those who don't trust in the name of the Lord Jesus. I heard someone recently describe the gospel without hell as a cross without meaning. Jesus came to live and to die and to pay the penalty for those who have faith in him so that we might come into the kingdom of heaven. The reality of hell actually helps us understand why Christ needed to come and ultimately what he's saving us from and for. It's a pretty drastic warning. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ's death and resurrection, then you have nothing to fear. You have the promise of eternity and it's glorious. You should be challenged, though, today to go out and proclaim the gospel, to seek to draw people to Christ. Hell is real, and I don't want people I know and love being there. I don't know about you. If you're not someone who trusts in the forgiveness that Christ offers through his death and resurrection, then today I urge you to explore the claims of Christ at least one more time. Talk with someone who brought you. you. Come and chat with me or someone you're sitting alongside at the end of the evening because the consequences of rejecting Christ's rule are eternal and it's not a pretty picture. The Lord Jesus will return. We are to be patient and we're to wait on the Lord. We know the time The time until his return will not necessarily be an easy one. We will come across evil in our world. But as we wait, we are to seek to make Christ known so that others may come to faith and enjoy the glorious riches of being part of God's eternal kingdom. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's something we don't deserve. It's not my worth or my merit, but it is Jesus. This past week, um, I dropped my wife and daughter at the airport and I had the four boys on my own, so we went up the Blue Mountains. and I had them all in the car with devices on their heads, which meant that I could put my music on. And as I drive along, I turned up the music and I'm singing along, probably really glad I didn't drive past too many people that I knew, And um, one of the songs that I was listening to or singing along with uh, was called My Worth Is Not What I Own. And it reminds me of my unworthiness and the gift of salvation that's found at the cross, found in Jesus. And these are the words of the song. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. To wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. We do indeed live in a world which is a mixture of good and evil, a place marred by sin and people's rejection of God's rule in their life. The outworkings of this it, we read in the newspapers. We watch on the nightly news. We see it in our relationships, in our own thinking and in our own behavior. We know, know that we can only be counted of righteous because of what Christ has done at the cross. We know that God will ultimately and decisively deal with evil and wickedness when Christ returns at the end of the age. And he is the perfect and holy judge who will get it right. In the meantime, we are to expect evil around us. We live amongst it. The parable promises us nothing else until the end of the age. And as we live in a broken world, our charge is to cling to the cross of Christ to preach the good news of Jesus, to be patient, humble and forgiving. And we're to seek lives that reflect the grace of Christ. I'll finish this evening with the word of 2 Timothy four one two, which is a bit of a charge for us as we wait for Christ to return. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we do acknowledge that we are a broken people. A people who so often live without care or reference to you. We recognize that we live in a broken world, corrupted by sin in so many ways. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son Jesus, that he died on a cross and that he rose again, conquering death, that through faith in him we can have forgiveness and we can be counted as righteous. Lord, we thank you that you are a just, a holy, and a righteous judge and that you will decisively deal with wickedness at the end of this age. Until then, Lord, we pray that we might be faithful examples of Christ to those around us, that we might preach the word, be prepared in and out of season, that we may show great patience, forgiveness and mercy. Lord, we ask for your help in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.